0: Someone asked me recently, what is the coolest part of my job as CEO at Marketing?" I said, well, that's easy. The fact that every day I get to dig into our clients' businesses to learn not only what makes it tick, but what we can do as their partner to deliver the marketing that truly matters to their business. It's like being in a living, breathing case study every day. And for that, I am truly blessed. Hello, Collision's YYC listeners. This was an overwhelming sense of pride that I wanted to share with you that the marketing agency that I had the pleasure of co-founding and leading is turning 15 years old. Yes, ClearMotive Marketing is fifteen. I wanted to shout out a huge thank you to all of our clients, past and present, as well as our vendors and all of the incredible team members we've worked with over the years to make this milestone possible. Check us out at ClearMotive.ca to learn more about what we can do that matters to you. Hello and Awarm Collisions YYC. Welcome to my guest this morning, Mr. Mark Binkley. How are you doing, Mark? I'm great. How about you? Good good to see you, man. It's awesome. Uh again always like my my 10 seconds of so how did we meet I don't know Calgary conspires yeah, you, you yeah. and I've known each other for years I think our first date was a few years back we had a coffee on uh, at Analog down on 17th Ave mm-hmm. I had known, so, each, yeah. known of each other and uh, you reached out and I which I appreciate Yeah I love the ability of 1 degree of separation here in uh, in this in this amazing big small town that we that we live in So you and I uh, stayed in contact and we've been talking about doing a podcast. And when we kind of narrow down what we're going to talk about, I love the rabbit hole. You are a sales and marketing executive. So the ability to geek out a little bit and go a little bit deeper, deeper conceptually on marketing brand, how sales and marketing intertwine. I'm pretty excited about today's show. So thanks. Thanks for coming on. And uh, maybe let us know a little bit, like, what are you, what are you up to these days? What are you working at?
1: Uh, these days I'm actually looking for a job. So this is a thing, uh, I'm spending a lot of time doing. Um, (laughs) but outside of that, uh, I'm, I just always fascinated in, in what works, um, probably partly because I grew up with a science background. And so there's this idea in my first line of, uh, my career around evidence-based medicine. Um, I started in pharmaceutical sales. And then I was in sales and worked in sales and uh, broadcast media at Rogers. So I, I really wanted to see what made people sign on dotted line more and looking at evidence and learning about um, advertising originally as a sales guy, but not knowing what it was and how advertising works. So I just went and tried to figure it out the same way I was learning science, which was in scientific journals, to see what the evidence was and how it worked. So that was kind of the start of my marketing career, I guess, is just trying to figure out how this whole thing works. And so I've just kind of kept up with that passion and really trying to figure out useful tools and tactics and concepts that make sense and are easy to explain and all that kind of stuff. So that's a lot of what I've been doing lately.
0: I love it. Well, that certainly sets the nice, that's, that's a very nice foundation for what we're going to talk about today. So just to clarify, um, did you have sales and marketing on your business card when you were a sales guy?
1: Well, originally it was just just sales.
0: Okay, yeah. well, it's one of my pet peeves, so I'm kind of setting you up here on this one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sales and marketing guys. So, is this just a sales guy that bolted marketing onto his card? Because they are very different disciplines. Totally. And I find sometimes the marketing word might get hijacked uh for a variety of reasons but you know through your through your career as as a sales guy where did marketing play was it a completely separate silo like you had your own passion around it and your belief and understanding of like hey maybe if i had more of this i can close more deals or i can get people to sign on the dotted line as as you say how did that kind of play out just even as your own career evolution like stay in your lane or was there a lot of openness to bringing in some of that marketing science if you
1: will um Well, I guess my first real exposure to marketing as a salesperson was when I was in pharma. I didn't realize, I mean, pharma is a little bit of a different beast in that the part of the reason why I wanted to go to broadcast media is because I wanted somebody to sign on the dotted line. In pharma, you would go and you would talk to a physician go, hey, next time you see this patient, like here's a patient profile, which is a lot like your target personas, right?
0: Yeah. Like a good ICP. Yeah.
1: (laughs) You go, Hey, would you prescribe this for the next ten people that look my medication for the next ten people that look like this? And then you go and they would say yes or no and you would handle objections and that kind of stuff. But then and you would hit some of the key messages that you were trained to speak on. And then you would leave some samples and then you would and the doctor would sign for that and then you'd walk away and leave some notes in the in your call <laughs> notes. Um so that was actually, it wasn't, I would consider that to be more face to face influencer marketing than sales. Totally. That's it, exactly you know what yeah, I mean. He took the like, words out of my mouth, actually. Yeah. The words right
0: out of my mouth.
1: And then later, I started working with uh, specialists to help them, like sell to them, same way I was selling to GPs, but then working with key influencers within the communities to say, to get up in front of a group of physicians and say, hey, here's a, here's a slide that shows that this product is really good. And here's my experience with, so it's now like advocacy and testimonials. Um, And so that was a big part of what I did. But one of the things that I did while I was in pharma was working with the uh, actual marketing team that they had in the pharmaceutical business in terms of building a rollout for a new product launch and how you communicate that information that needs to be, uh, shared to all the reps across the country in a meaningful way, and how does the rollout look? And what kinds of information do they need? And how do we know? And what are the needs of the physicians? And so, building out a go-to-market plan, but through the sales channel.
0: Interesting, so much, and I, I, I appreciate you said like evidence-based and science and very analytical, but yet you quickly are moving into a world where it's about influence and the psychology of that. Totally, and the ability to understand, you know. You can the same four value propositions, would could be true for four physicians, but two two latch onto it, and two couldn't give you the time of day. But yet the value was the same, and maybe the the patients that they saw were the same. So very quickly, that's interesting. As someone who has a science background and looks at things that way, I quickly realized why people do things. That was a messy. That's a messy space. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Well, and the evidence part was really like uh, physicians would say we practice evidence based mess uh, medicine, mm-hmm. which makes tons of sense. Um, and so yeah. for the products the products that we had whatever therapeutic field they were in the products needed to have an indication which meant that they were approved by you know in this case Canada. well they wouldn't even
0: have got to market if they hadn't gone through that it's part of the rigor of the system right true
1: like i had a blood pressure medication that was i was flogging for a while and so the blood pressure medication in order for it to get on the market had had to have been approved as it well it does no harm so it did not kill anybody um but it was good at lowering blood pressure. That was like a, so that was an indication that it got in order to, for evidence to support that it actually lowered blood pressure, and then you're allowed mm-hmm. to say that it lowered blood pressure because it proved it, there was proof that it did.
0: The level of rigor behind that claim was 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 yeah. You need uh, thousands was of sh- patients, sh- sh- and it was and it was it was trusted right before you even got yeah. It, it was a that.
1: placebo-controlled mm-hmm. uh, double-blinded trial and all that kind of stuff, right? And so. So that's the evidence. Just,
0: just like how most companies we work with now go to market, right? Totally.
1: <laughs> but that's the evidence. And so then later on, they did further studies that got it an indication in, say, um, uh, post-myocardial infarction. So after somebody's had a heart attack, you could show that it didn't kill anybody and is actually helpful. And then it showed it in cardiovascular patients that had like congestive heart failure. So they got all these additional indications. So, so doctors would look at these indications and go, okay, well, what are where can I use this product in my therapeutic uh, portfolio to help solve people's problems of like, you know, I've got a patient with say diabetes and they've got all these other complications and so on and so forth. What's the right product if their blood pressure is high to bring that down? So, so that's the evidence-based approach that physician would use to try and implement a solution for their customers or their patients. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. No, I think I think we start working the customer. Yeah. I think the word customer is going to be more relevant to our audience than patients. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, as you started to i love where I love origin stories, I'm a marketer, so I love a good origin story, right. but kind of you know growing up in that environment and then transferring that into the world of media where there's some measurement and there's metrics and did you get did it, did it run did it not totally. did it get reached did it did it get to the audience you wanted to get it to uh, you know in yourself as you moved through and moved much more into a business setting, how much did that like to me a lot of it holds true it's just the words change and the style and the approach totally. change, but it's very similar
1: totally. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Well, and so in that, in, in that case, like I was, so I was selling radio and TV and web at the time for Rogers. And so when I was talking to a, a potential new business that wanted to do business with us and buy advertising, they would want to know what are the things that are working? Like, how do I know this is going to work? And yeah, so similar like a doctor going, yeah. how much blood pressure can I expect to drop by using this, adding this product on? the the business owner that I was working with would say, well, what's it going to do for me? And so that's where, like, since that first question, probably on the first day of my existence as a sales guy in, in broadcast media, I've been trying to figure out, like, what is this going to do for you and how do you actually measure it?
0: It's the elusive question for all of the, you know, we chatted earlier, who's my, who's my audience? It tends to be business leaders, managers, seniors, senior level, also directors, and also people that are getting their careers going and wanting to get in touch with the business community in Calgary. Yeah. But that question as you're, if you're a marketer and you're going to get, if you haven't been asked that question already, you're going to, whether you're in a pitch or whether you're working client side and you bring some new idea to the table and they have to choose whether to put budget to it or not, how do I know it's going to work? Right. So with that as our, as our real jump off point, it took us a few minutes to get yeah, here. yeah, yeah. Yeah. What are some of the theories or some of the, the 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 concepts that are out there when you go a little bit deeper into, yeah. you know, the good old reach? I was talking to somebody the other day. I said, "Hey, you can make this as complicated as you want, but sooner or later, reach and frequency still show up at the table. Totally. You still got to get in front of your audience enough times with yeah. a message that's relevant." Knowing and some of the stats that you sent me before this call that ninety-five percent of them statistically aren't actually ready to buy from you when you get in front of them, but they might be later. Yeah. So you know, from that level, what are some of the things that you've latched onto, or even lately that you're uh, but buying into yeah. around some of these concepts Yeah that, like my audience can actually go, okay, I get yeah, that. Totally. Here's how I might use my thing
1: tomorrow. Well, I, I would say, uh, let me start with a couple of things. There's when I first started selling radio, like the frequency of three was a thing that everybody was yeah, like, totally, that's how you yeah. buy media. Um, and so, which for our
0: audience, like, just go, like, I never want to leave anything yeah. as
1: assumption. So frequency of three defined is mm, the principle of that is that you buy A media schedule or placements per weeks in, in that on average, you're going to reach the average listener three times per week with your ads. Yeah. So that's the idea behind the frequency thing. And, you know, there's a lot of like, it's a rule of thumb, uh, that a lot of people talk about. And I spend a lot of time trying to figure out where that came from. Uh, and uh, there's I, no I, proof I, I,
0: I just, the person who told me seemed credible so I believe them and that was 15 years ago yeah. and I haven't, I haven't questioned it but I don't usually apply it but I was, I quoted it yesterday. I'm laughing at myself actually. I yeah. literally said that to someone yesterday.
1: <laughs> so there's no, there's no actual real proof for it uh, as far as I could tell. There was a guy that like a long time ago talked about how on average, it takes about three impressions to influence a person, but you still get it. And he different... was a
0: broadcast executive, yeah, Who probably. Me? Who... <laughs> so, there,
1: so yeah, like check your source, was... folks. Check your source. Yeah. yeah. So that was one of my things. I'm like, why? Why? And it, it makes sense. It's, you know, I mean, it's a great way to sell. Everybody talks about it. it's a great like yeah. tool, like on ter- in terms of how do you package something up, and you know, there's lots, lots of, um because lots of people say it, you believe it. And so I I just thought that was interesting. Uh, But it's not to say, so later on, I was like, well, why three? Why not just one a day, like an apple a day? And so there's value in that too, because you can reach every minute in a broadcast media audience, there's a certain number of people that are listening. And so if it's 2,000, 3,000, whatever the number is, there's value in reaching two or 3,000 people, even if it's just once a day that's two or 3000 people more that you hadn't talked to before. So, so that was one concept that I was like, Oh, where did that come from? And then the second concept where, uh, was, and everybody's heard about this, which is the funnel, the sales and marketing funnel. I mean, that is probably closest thing to gospel. I would say in most, um, sales and marketing.
0: And there's always, there's always groups taking shots at it as well, especially these days.
1: (laughs) Totally. Yeah. So, and then there, there's this other guy, um, what's his name? Uh, box, I think I forgot. He's an econometrician or something, but he had this. Okay, he had this statement where I'm sure you can look it up on Google. Um, but it was you know all models are wrong, some are useful.
0: Yeah, I know the quote. I don't know who. It is, yeah, so, yeah.
1: So, so uh, you know, the funnel is a really useful model, but it's wrong. Like there is no funnel in a buyer's mind. Like they're not going from. We were talking to this other uh, really smart lady. She's like, "There's no." hallway that a customer is going through going, oh, I'm now passing the awareness door, and I'm about to enter the uh, <laughs> interest room. And then and so therefore
0: the tr- now I only want to consume this type of content <laughs> right. on these channels in this way. Right. 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 So no, there's lots that, of models. No, and
1: As it turns out the f- sales funnel, as we know, the sales and marketing funnel, which is really famously uh, talked about in uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, um, know, yeah, attention, desire, interest action. So, yep. um. That was built in 1898 by a guy named Edward St. Elmo Elias. Elias Saint- anyway, whatever his name is. I can get 1898
0: the being the key time frame. Yeah, like, a long yeah, time yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. And it's a we, We've learned some things. Helpful. We've learned things then, but it's, it's hard to let go of those.
1: Right yeah, now. it's, it's helpful it's useful but it's it's wrong for sure it's wrong
0: and so I've been looking for ways is it wrong or is it just does it run the risk of oversimplifying what actually goes on you know back to all models are wrong but some are useful yeah I still think it's useful but when you take it as gospel you're now just driving you're driving without looking out the windows because you're trusting the map that someone drew six years ago that might be outdated (laughs) yeah
1: well totally but I mean it's simple it I think it's it's harmful or it's uh, worrisome in the sense that it oversimplifies things. Mm, okay. uh, and so Gartner recently, or in the last couple of years, they published a really interesting uh, case study around, the, they called it the Longheart's log. And it's like sort of this, um, they tried to map out the journey of a buyer going through a B2B buying experience.
0: Oh, I think I've seen that. I've seen that graph. It's
1: insane. You can't follow it because it's like, it's so complicated. All the hoops and hurls they have to jump through and all that kind of stuff. And so if if the sales and marketing funnel that we know it was was accurate, your conversion rates would be much higher because it's so straightforward and simple. When you look at what they did with the Longheart slog, you go, Oh, no wonder we only have a 2% conversion rate. Like, especially in a B2B scenario where you have, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 different decision makers that are influencing the purchase. Uh, cycle.
0: So where do you think, and now we're going to, you, be, you, you know, just cause you're on the show, you've become my de, you're my de facto expert in everything and all things marketing. Now, where did we get so addicted to this? What I call, you know, my customers, I don't buy that way, but my customers will, I don't buy the first time I see an ad. I don't follow the steps, yeah. but oh, my customers as an advertiser, and we'll, we'll pick on B2B a little bit, because I think that sometimes in the business to business world, there's, there's maybe a lack of appreciation at the medium or even smaller level of B2B marketing tends to get relegated. It's at the yeah. kid's table, it's not treated with the same respect as sales is or R and D or whatever the, you know, customer success. Right. But there's this belief that I run an ad, I get a sale. Yeah. Where, where did we pick up or do you have any thoughts on where we picked up this completely false sense of the way it should work versus how it actually works?
1: Yeah, so as far as I know, uh, and I've looked into this too. So there's this idea around um, like a direct response. And so um, Mm -hmm. that marketing is a strong force. And so marketing is a strong force. It's a theory that's, and there's a weak force theory. And so Ah. weirdly enough, the strong force theory is more prevalent in the United States and probably in Canada because of our proximity and influence from, from the U.S. But it basically says, "Here's a horse, put an ad in front of it for water, and you can make it drink." <laughs> the weak force theory says, <laughs> uh here's a horse, put an ad in front of it for water, and maybe it'll drink at some point when it's thirsty
0: when it's when it's thirsty, I think is the real key yeah <laughs> so and do we just believe the first one because it appeals to us more because like there's science and then there's human then there's humans we're messy, and we have biases. On top of biases that we don't even know are that we think are the truth.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's, I I think in part because we're, it depends on whether you're sales oriented or market oriented um, or product oriented for that matter, Uh, as an organization, I would say that matters, like your perspective and your stance on things matters a lot on how you see the world. And so if you believe, if you're a sales oriented organization, you believe that everything that we do is going to have a direct response. And so advertising is a strong force theory, right? You can put uh-huh. an ad in yeah. front of a horse to showing it water. And it goes back drink. to your
0: biases it's because that's the way you choose to see the world.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. But then there's all kinds of things like, you know, as a human that, um, as a or any consumer on the planet is, and you know, I've seen numbers like 10,000, they are exposed to 10,000 ads a day. So strong <laughs> force theory was real and is the only thing that worked then. We would all be buying a ton of shit and we would be broke.
0: <laughs> Cause I am one purchase away from self-actualization. If I my teeth were a <laughs> right. bit whiter and I had that beer and I drove that car, yeah. oh man, the yeah. joy and happiness that would that would rain down on my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm a marketer and I love it, but I still sometimes laugh at yeah. you know this this world that we of consumerism of like, well, we're almost self-actualized. We're just one more purchase. Right yeah. Just buy Man, can I put that happiness on layaway? Because if not, I got I got eighteen payments to get get out. Anyway, sorry, I'm don't being I'm being a bit facetious here, as I am. Yeah, so close, Mark. I'm so close. I know. I, I can feel it. But I really appreciate like so much in life is what 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 glasses do we put on? What filters yeah. do we have that go? Oh, I believe in it this way. I believe in it that way. Yeah. But so often, and I don't know if you've had this experience. Unfortunately, we have working with organizations that you tell them we're going to test and learn. Yeah, I love test and learn. We're going to go to market. We're mm-hmm. going to really test your ICP because you're pretty sure this is your ideal customer profile, but you're not sure. Mm-hmm. Let's go test it. No, no, no. We're all about testing. Yeah. 6 weeks into the campaign, well, we're going to turn this off. I was like, "Why? Well, we haven't got any sales."
1: Yeah. I'm
0: like, "Okay. Yeah. That was like I'll be that wasn't the promise." Yeah, right. yeah, but we'll, like we need some sales. It's not we can't justify the spend. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. What have we learned? Ah, right, we're not interested in that. We just want sales. And I've encountered that more often than I'd like. And I try to change my presentation and try to be clear about it. But mm-hmm. I've run into clients and companies out there and uh, uh, that have been really guilty of that. And they harden themselves because they don't necessarily get to learn anything mm-hmm. from it. It just becomes, oh, that, and then all of a sudden now advertising and marketing becomes, oh, that didn't work. We tried it once. Yeah. And it gets relegated. And that happens in surprisingly large organizations as well. I'm not talking happens about everywhere, yeah. like smalls. Yeah. Totally.
1: Yeah, no, no, totally. But, and yeah. so when
0: you engage with a company, whether it's as a consulting role or whether it's in, in, in a full-time role, how do you, like, how do you get around that? Because I've got some people now that are probably leaning in and going, Hey, I have a conversation to have with my CEO and I need to get around this exact obstacle.
1: Right. Yeah. That's a good question. And it's a real, it's a real thing. Like I've had that experience often. Um, <laughs> if and you're so, a
0: marketer and you've worked in B2P, you've definitely.
1: Have. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am B2C too. And yeah. And so, so I don't
0: pick on business to business. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but both of them are, are. Like, like the the importance of delivering a result in the short term, especially in a publicly traded company, yeah, there's a lot of pressure to do that. And so there's, you know, the pressure goes downstream. It's baked and so, into
0: being publicly traded, actually.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's baked
0: into quarterly results. Right? Yeah, exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, um, but to go back to a couple of things that you talked about uh, and touched on before. So 595 or 95.5 rule or 595, depending on your position, yep. state of potato potato.
0: <laughs> depends on your perspective. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to talk about that and then linking it to the uh, uh, strong force, weak force theory. So the difference between strong force and weak force theory, and to your question about like, how do you manage the pressure of delivering result today? So the truth is that there's in any given market, in any given scenario, uh, probably 5% of the customers in the, in the total customer base are looking at making a purchase today. 95% of the customers are making a purchase tomorrow. So this is, You you can look this up. There's a thing called the 595 rule. Um, And I've I've done this study for clients in the past. And we looked at like a home builder, for example. We did a survey of the market, substantial market size uh, or substantial survey size of like 800 people who are in the market for or of Calgarians specifically. um, And asked them about when they're thinking about making a purchase or if they are at all. And so about 7% of the people i think was the number said they're looking at making a purchase for a new home in the next 6 months and then 93% were looking at 6 months plus or you know upwards of never so so the the idea around the strong force theory really only works for the people who are in market today cuz they're the ones who are actively looking they're the ones who are paying attention there's the, they're the ones who are like understanding the value of a message that is being targeted at them The first time I had this like epiphany around these kinds of things when I was, the first time I got drunk and the first time I had a hangover, I was 16 and I didn't realize how many beer ads there were on TV and they were always there. (laughs)
0: In- until they made you feel ill until
1: I needed to go yeah throw up and so <laughs> like six seven eight times and I didn't see that story the going there Mark that was yeah. a good one I like that <laughs> but but like so for all of us it was it, I, I don't know why I always think about that but it was the, one of those things I always think about I'm like that was the weirdest thing because I it was very clear to me at that point that um I, I was aware and, and hyper attentive to things that were being that were just out in the ether that they never notice, and so when you hear people say, "Oh, ads don't work on me, it's because they're not in the market, yeah, or the ad itself is too until, specific, until and so it's about that low hanging fruit like come by now, and not about the hey, here's this brand message like we should pay attention to this, so things like you know the snickers ad um mm-hmm. you know you're not you're not yourself when you're when you're hungry when you're, when you're yep.
0: hungry <laughs> that's the, that's immediately what I thought of when you said snickers ads, so yes.
1: <laughs> So that kind of thing, it's not about like buy now, but it's one of those things that keeps people top of mind. So when they're going through the checkout counter, they go instantly from like, let's say top of funnel to purchase. And it's not even really-
0: I didn't even know I was thinking about one until I saw it. Right. So
1: it it helps influence choice. And so in that sense, um, brand ads or weak force theory ads also work. And so really the balance between those two things, 5% of the ads of the people who are in market who are shopping today, those strong force ads about buy now, those are the things that are going to work for them. But the 95% of the market who is not shopping today and not looking at buying a Snickers, not going through the checkout today um not hung over today whatever the thing is right not buying a house
0: i'm not in the market for a snowboard i'm not yeah, planning vacation yeah they're going to ignore like all those I, yeah yeah mm.
1: all those short term ads but if you have a piece of creative that like the snickers thing that can capture their attention because it's fun it's funny it's engaging it's entertaining yeah. whatever and put the brand in front of them then it Plast will help influence their purchase ch- decision in the future
0: and those direct-to-consumer um, kind of high-volume things like a Snickers bar with multiple purchases, those industries get that incredibly well. Mm-hmm. You know, How do you borrow some of those theories that are well-tested and well-proven and bring it into large, uh, technically-oriented, multi-month purchase cycle, uh, B2B in- industrial solutions? It, there's some interesting balance. Totally. In, in, curious, your thoughts around, hey, a Snickers bar, it's good when you're hungry. It's a pretty easy concept to understand. What about the situation where the customer, and this happens a lot in startups, it happens a lot in companies that maybe have an established product line, but all of a sudden they've their engineers, their R and D team, which they take very seriously, has spent years perfecting a way to solve a problem that they know the customer has. But I, the customer, I'm not even really problem aware yet. I don't even realize there's a solution to my problem. How do some of these theories kind of morph now when you think about that journey? And there's a lot of startups out there that are striving for that product market fit. They're sure they've got it licked, Mm -hmm. but the customer doesn't even. I didn't even know I needed that until I realized it came true. Talk to me about the role of advertising in that because you've got an education cycle there that's a little bit different than the education time around a Snickers bar.
1: Mm -hmm. True. Um, So I guess the thing, so rather, uh, I want to introduce another idea here. So rather than uh, a funnel, the thing that I've started thinking a lot about, there's another model that I think is superior to the funnel, which is physical and mental availability. So this comes from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute of Marketing Science. Um, Ehrenberg, the name is is of Andrew Ehrenberg. So it's namesake uh, of the organization is after er- Andrew Ehrenberg. And for anybody who's read Ogilvy's books, Ogilvy talks about this guy, Andrew Ehrenberg, in his books. So that's who this comes from. He's like an- Oh,
0: I haven't read an Ogilvy book for years, and I wouldn't have remembered that. But I'm glad you asked And just for everyone listening, I've got these- uh, I've got some of these links here, so we'll pop them into the, into yeah. the body. So if you're curious, which if this podcast does its job, top of funnel, uh, got you curious about yeah. something, so we'll make sure we put some links for you to go do some research if you want. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Anyways, please continue. Yeah, so so mental and physical availability is a is concept that comes from the Amber Bass Institute, and, and after doing a lot of studies on uh, consumer behavior, they, they have established a few rules, a law-like patterns in consumer behavior. Like gravity, like, you know, gravity, fall, like an object will fall at 9.86 <laughs> meters per second squared. That's the same kind of predictability that they, these patterns in consumer behavior have. And so that's why they call them laws, not like rules of thumb or things like that. So a
0: law, a law, not a theory.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Back to your, back to the science filter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so
1: that was like, this so, can be
0: replicated and not, and, and it's hard to br- to make it not true actually yeah. <laughs> the other
1: way around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so physical mental availability is really just a summary of all these laws. And so they look at how brands actually grow. And that was the name of the book, How Brands Grow. And there's part one, part two, and they've written a whole bunch of other ones. But um, looking at evidence on how brands really grow. And so brands, uh, this concept of mental and physical availability basically says that brands grow because they are more physically available. You can buy them and they're more mentally available. You remember them in different buying situations and you recognize them as themselves when you go f- from an ad to like you know the consumer counter for example uh like a Snickers bar as you're going through the checkout line. And in a B2B scenario, it's especially important because if you think about that life cycle of the customer's purchase, it might take 2-3 years sometimes, upwards like it's it can be really long sales cycles. And so if you think about An ad that a person might see in a B2B scenario as a starting point. Let's say that was a, you know, going back to the top of funnel thing. Let's say that was a top of funnel, like, oh, here's an awareness ad. Sure, that's one thing. Then they go to your website at some point, maybe. And then they go to, say, like, call a salesperson to have an interaction who then presents them decks. And then presents them, like, whatever the package is or whatever the thing is there's a whole series of sequences that happen there. Then they have maybe an implementation team and then they've got a customer service team. And so each one of those touch points then becomes a branded experience. And if that brand doesn't look like itself throughout that whole process, then it decreases its mental availability and the consistency of it. It makes you kind of question what's going on. And is it really that good? Is it because it doesn't look like itself? So, um, Anyway, long story short, mental health is really important.
0: Yeah. For anyone who's bought a B2B SaaS solution, um, uh, once you get to implementation, it often falls apart from the story that you originally purchased. (laughs) Totally. And chatting with some customers in that space, and they're like, you know, we are going all in on our customer success and our implementation team so that what you help us say to our audience actually is true when. But I love that not only will they go, oh, geez. That didn't, ugh, this is not what we thought. It's, it's actually categorized as the, as the mental availability around that brand. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I like that a lot. Hmm. So how does this play into when you're talking about like distinctiveness in the market so that you can recognize it versus differentiation? We have a better mousetrap and and here's why. How how do those two variables play? Because it sounds like distinctiveness is actually more important in this than the differentiation, which then needs to be there, but it's a different, it's a different thing.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you bring that up because there's literally this debate right now, I would say over the last two, three months that emerged about the difference versus distinctiveness and whether one matters more than another or not. And so if anyone's interested, there's a great talk by Mark Ritson talking about it, the opposite end of that spec. And he pokes fun a lot at, um, Derenberg Bass Institute. Uh, Um, but if you think about any product, um, there's very little differentiation, like true, meaningful differentiation between the products. So differentiation is really, like I pick ketchup. there's like six different kinds of ketchup you could probably buy mustard cars like I, if I want a mid-sized SUV, like how many cars <laughs> are there? If you're looking at an email service provider, how many of those are there? Like there's dozens in a lot of cases in each industry in each category. So differentiation is really difficult in a whole but for a whole bunch of reasons if If you truly have a differentiated product, like let's say Tesla, everyone points at Tesla, not anymore, right? Like it was at the beginning, yep. totally differentiated because it was one of the first. But if you're North right America,
0: and there's popularity and there's demand, the differentiation will get flooded out because other people rush into the space, right? Yeah, yeah and so 100%. innovation and yeah.
1: gets you know new innovative things that succeed become the new benchmark, and so companies copy that.
0: But there is—is is there an argument? I love let's pull in the Tesla thread for a second. You, you know, whether you're a car guy or a car girl or a car human, and a car goes by, Teslas are distinctive. There's a look. There's they—they they weren't intended to look like normal, uh, you know, internal combustion engines. Does and I'm being very literal of just yeah. seeing the thing itself, and versus seeing another. You know, I would say even the whole category has a distinctiveness to it, where you know you see. It, you can tell it's a it's an EV, yeah, and you can tell it's probably not a Tesla, but you have no idea actually what it is yeah. because once you get past Tesla, the the brand recognition probably falls off a cliff. Yeah, does that still play into that in the sense that they've made their vehicles look the way they look? Like, you, I think the Cybertruck, you look at it, you're like, well, that's distinctive, and you either love it or hate it. But that's the risk with distinctiveness, right? You, it can be more polarizing. Mm-hmm.
1: Can be for sure, but I would say like uh, so. T- so Rivian is another like. Uh, oh yeah, I do that's know that. out the, there sure. Fiskers, that's right. I see yeah. all over the places. Uh, I think well, I don't seen know those if those the a same while as where... scissors people or not, but I don't
0: know. And, oh yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just bought an Fiskers axe, axe the other day. I think it's a different company. My axe definitely does not look like the Anyways, that's Maybe. funny. I don't Anyway, know. yeah, like yeah, Tesla anyway, was... sorry rabbit hole for Tyler yeah. and Mark to talk about later. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tesla <laughs> was um it was really like different for a long time in part because it was an EV and in part because of the design. But now like there's Everybody's been benchmarking and copying their innovations. And so now it's not nearly as different. And differentiation is really hard to sustain. And so the the Ardenberry Bassin's argument is because it's hard to sustain, it's not to say that it's not real, but it's not necessary to compete in the market. On the opposite hand, okay. and then uh, Ritson would say that Differentiation is, is in the minds of the consumers. So that really doesn't matter whether it's truly differentiated from everything else in the market or not. It's whether the consumer or group of consumers that's a serviceable market actually thinks that the thing that you have is different or not. But in either which case- touch, Which
0: really touches on- uh, the group of consumers that buys versus your consumer being super unique from everyone else, but we can touch on that one. Like, yeah. That's we'll talk tying about into too, that yeah. 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 Cause it's kind of leading into, no, our customers are different.
1: Are they different? No, or are they they're just not. category
0: They're category customers. Yeah. They're not.
1: <laughs> so, um, and so anyway, like differentiation question mark around that one, but distinctiveness yeah. is unequivocal. Yeah. You-, you need to have a distinctive look, feel, experience, whatever the thing is. Yeah, um, and it has to be consistent across all of your touch points for the consumer, and so by being consistent, you can then with your distinctiveness. So that's your brand elements, let's say, and brand elements is not just a logo; it's also taglines, Please, jingles. no, it's
0: it's, it's more experienced than anything else. Actually. Yeah, <laughs> I mean,
1: like uh, Corona, like their their lime in the bottle. That's part like. They don't make limes, but that's still part of their distinctiveness. <laughs> but they're
0: good for the lime, the lime industry,
1: right? And so I don't. I, I
0: think the cartels are involved in that somehow. Yeah, so maybe. we'll talk about that yeah, another maybe. time. I don't know. That's a whole other story. Totally. <laughs> this is not an episode of Vice. We're not going to go undercover.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but even uh, like going back to cars for a second, like a Porsche is distinctive because of its design, not because of its performance, in my mind, but because of its design, like. I just saw a Corvette recently. I'm not a car guy either, but I just saw a Corvette and I was talking to my buddy. I'm like, they're really hard to s- differentiate from a Ferrari in my mind. Well, and I, I
0: do feel that was intentional, but I, I, wasn't at the, I wasn't on the design floor when that happened. Yeah. Like my, wife, my wife said that the other day, who doesn't really like cars or cars. Yeah. She's like, oh, wow. And it looks a lot like a Ferrari. That's yeah. exactly what she said. That's funny you say that. Yeah, I, I feel somebody somewhere had a hand in that. That didn't. That come on. Did that have my accident? <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> so I, I
1: think like, things, but it's
0: but it's ninety grand, and your Ferrari is four hundred grand. So maybe that's also yeah. a part of it too, right? Mm-hmm.
1: So I think you know distinctiveness matters a lot, and it it should be a non negotiable. And so it's not about brand police. It's about um, it's about building the repetition in consumers' minds. So that yeah. the brand becomes more mentally available. So everything is supporting one another. All the other elements of the brand, of the company, are supporting the other elements, and that doesn't. It looks like themselves wherever the customer interacts with them.
0: I love being consistent at being distinctive. It's one, it's, you'll have many quotes from this episode, but that's the one I wrote down. I really, I really, like that. And getting beyond that conversation of like, oh yeah, I know we did some logo and we did an ad like that. That's that's our brand like. Actually not. It's if someone just purchased your product and they're at a backyard barbecue and someone asks them about it, what they say, <laughs> that's your brand. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's yeah. unfortunately, and it can be, make it in that. So this is one of our jokes, make it easy for people to talk about you in, totally. the, in the way you want them to talk about you. Totally. Because that means you've, you've achieved a high degree of mental availability. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And Hey, just for the record for our audience, Fiskers and Fisker. So Fisker's, I think is with an E and Fisker is with an AR. So if you want to buy an ax, it has an A in it. If you want to buy a car, it has an E in it.
1: <laughs> Perfect. Thanks. I was I I was yeah, yeah, honestly, no, I was because curious about that as well. <laughs> I was wondering about that forever. Yeah. Okay. Thanks.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So thanks Google. Yeah. Oh, my trustee, uh, <laughs> trustee resource of research here. But, but hey, yeah. let's talk about personas a little bit. Let's talk. Yeah. I love start with your ideal customer profile. Who is your customer? Who are they? Yeah. But I think also I've been environments where we have 27 different personas. I'm like, okay, yeah. whoa, like we're, we got drunk on that concept here. We went too far. Talk to me about your, you know, what your, the science has led you and your research has led you to really understand around the category versus how different you're actually, you've, your consumer is, or maybe isn't.
1: Yeah. So one of those laws that we were talking about was, it's the weirdest name, but it's the law of, uh, let me try to remember it exactly. It, In any cat, well, I won't get the name of it right, but in any category uh, or any company in a category, their customer base is probably a mirror image of the category buyers for that particular category. Okay. So, um, and if it's not, they've done something intentionally to exclude other category buyers. So. Hmm. As an okay. example, like I was working uh, in a B two B scenario in a SaaS organization. And so, in if you look at um, what call it, the NAICS codes. Okay. Yeah.
0: Uh, it's funny. I have that tab open on my screen for some bizarre reason right now. <laughs> We're working with a client who's looking to go into the U.S. market, and they wanted to understand, hey, we've got we've got five percent market penetration in Canada. We believe that there's other customers like our Canadian customers in right. Texas, California, and Florida. Right, but we know our some of our differentiators, like cold weather performance, it was a construction related product, aren't going to fly in Texas. Okay, so where are the similarities? So we were right. actually starting to do some research using the uh, the NA NAICS codes. Yeah, I don't know. I've heard people
1: call it NAICS. I don't know if that's the right way to say it or okay. not. But anyway, NAICS North
0: American Industry Classification System. Right. Well, well, again, just, I'm laughing because I literally had to tell one of my eighty tabs was what was that?
1: That's funny. <laughs> So if you were to take like <laughs> kind of a, weird
0: actually kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, if
1: you make a tree chart out of that and and you took like the two digit code and the two digit yeah. code would be say 30 I think 33 is manufacturing. Um, so you take all the and the Oh, and,
0: you okay, your your geek is showing right yeah, there, right? <laughs> and so
1: if you take all of those two digit codes and you were to put it on a graph and show not a graph, but a tree chart and show like the market share by revenue size of that category or I think those are sectors they call them okay. of each of those sectors it would turn out to be something like 40% of the market is in manufacturing of the entire north american business ecosystem is in Falls manufacturing that that broad category yeah and then it goes down from there and professional services is in there somewhere and there's like all these other categories that are out there and so in that state in that scenario all those industry all those sectors are potential clients right so it's in a way a segment it's a way to do segmentation of the market well it's not in a way it is a way to do a segmentation
0: of the <laughs> like yeah it is absolutely it a is 100% the
1: way to, you you can do market segmentation that way and so for that customer that you're just talking about um they can choose to have their product fit in only one category let's say manufacturing. But it might actually be used in multiple other... I keep mixing up my words. But it might be... Uh, it, they could choose to only target, say, manufacturing, but it could also okay. work in other sectors. The other thing that is kind of fascinating is that people get mixed up, I think, in a lot of like segmentation stuff. So um, so you could go that go two-digit level, or you could go like four, five, six, seven digit level, and you get more and more refined. And so you go, okay, well, aerospace is different than manufacturing and it turns out that it's not really different the way the NAICS is set up is that the processes that underpin the business are the things that unify that business the widgets they make come later so you can get super fixated on the widgets that people make and then over over complicate your segmentation strategy because of the widgets that are being made and then, therefore, limit your ability to penetrate the market because you could really be selling it to all manufacturing people.
0: Which is interesting because now, thinking about this from an in the boardroom, we're actually going to do the work, and I've done this with companies where it's like, well, these are your three different categories, and they sorry, it's all under one category, it's all under manufacturing, right. but these are three different sectors. If I'm using my terms right now, you got me confused now. Yeah, two-digit
1: sectors, and then I, I we would the way we did it before it was like genus species. Again, this is my science coming back, but. Two digit was a genus level, so like Homo sapiens. So Homo yep. is genus and sapiens is species. So it was two digit was a was a genus, and then four plus digit was the species level.
0: Okay, I don't know if we're making it easier for our audience, yeah. but I know what you're. I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> when I first land on your landing, we'll use landing pages. This is just a really simple way to kind of parlay this. <clears throat> if it doesn't look like me, if it doesn't look like aerospace, and it looks like mining. Even though the thing you're your the solution you're providing is gonna work just as well in totally. my processes and the way I do business. But there's a different level of like, oh, I'm in the right place. And then yeah. the rest of the copy could be almost the same. Right. <laughs> depending on like industry's level. But right. there is that going, Oh, I'm in the right place. This right. looks like you're speaking to me. Totally. But then if you take that too far, you can really drive yourself nuts. Yeah. Trying to like nuance and the, the right. punctuation and the way we talk versus Ultimately, because you're solving a similar problem, they just need to know that you get them.
1: Right. So <laughs> I'm
0: way oversimplifying this, yeah. but that's the that's the point of what we're trying to do, right? Yeah.
1: So so going back to your and sorry, this is a long way, winded way to get into your answer <laughs> about personas. So, so that example you had of like, well, here's a mining, here's an aerospace, like you can create personas based off of that, right? Yep. Fair enough. But you could also create it off of the category the entry points the problems the pain points the triggers that make people go into look for a solution in that category and that's that pain point could be the same for the mining company as it is the same for um the aerospace company and so in my past world uh we were i was working in an erp uh selling erps and so we were trying to go down these like very Species level, industry arguably
0: too 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 far down the rabbit
1: hole. Mm. Whereas there's a a competitor in the market called Netsuite, who was just targeting the CFOs of any company. It didn't matter Mm. because they because they knew their problems are the Mm. same. Yeah, and so a persona, sure, because in that case they have a CFO, but limiting yourself to just say the like aerospace sector CFOs didn't make a whole lot of sense. So so looking at the
0: could it could it make sense from a targeting perspective as long as you then like I'm what I'm thinking I'm looking at my at my whiteboard and I've got five different pillars which might be aerospace, might be mining. And then the next pillar is CFOs. I'm going to make my look and feel look like it's mining, look like it's aerospace, but once I get down to my next tier, the CFOs are all CFOs and below that my solutions and my problem matrix and the way I present my differentiate my mm-hmm. distinctiveness there Can be the same across the board. Sure. But I might just put a different outfit on it. (laughs) Sure. I might wear a, a, you know, a Carhartts to one and a suit to the other.
1: (laughs) Yep. You you could, but then you're starting, it's almost like brand architecture where you start getting the scenario where how many different brands are you going to like support within your own business? And so you're also putting a Then it becomes not sustainable. Right. You're putting a cap on your market growth. There was other examples of ERPs Hmm. that focused exclusively on uh, like the craft beer market. So- that could be a similar scenario what you're talking about so if you exclusively focus on the craft beer market and and, you know providing software as a solution to that group of people that's a finite group of people yeah and so your solution might actually be perfect for other kinds of small manufacturers um or craft like manufacturers in all kinds of different industries but they'll never buy it because everything looks like it was built for craft beer which is fine if, if you know, like, let's say it was, I'll just make this easy, but let's say the craft beer market was worth a hundred bucks. What is your market penetration at best going to be like maybe 40%? Like that would take, that would be amazing. So that means uh, you're going to yeah. make 40 bucks or, or your <laughs> revenue would be 40 bucks. Yeah, yeah. For, in, in, right?
0: in, in, the, in the context of the example.
1: So, but, but if you were looking at long-term sustainable growth over decades, um, that, that's going to, you're going to run out of room. And so then you have to like pivot the whole organization to say, no, 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 it's not just about craft beer or create a new company and say, it's also about all these other things. And so, so you could just target the category entry points rather than be hyper specific about the, the industry and not the widget, but focus on the needs of the people in that industry who share common processes and operations.
0: How thinking about it from a marketing perspective, sometimes it's easier, quote unquote, to pick mining because, okay, we can now focus. We know it. Right. We're, just, I'm, we're, we're working with a client right now out of uh, Northern Ontario that's the SaaS solution. They're like, oh, it can help so many industries, but we come from mining. Our story is mining. We came out of a mining con- large mining sure. contractor. So the mining company also, the, and this is talking to some of the senior people there, that they do have a bias because they're in the sector. They sure. came from the sector mining mining guys don't and gals don't want to look at you if you don't if you don't know mining so yep. we're going all in on that but that's also their bias as the leadership team in that organization you know i'm not yep. saying they're right or wrong i'm just using totally. it as, as, as an example totally and uh i am we're, we're doing some strategy and we're looking at icp right now and they're like nope we have decided we're going all in on this group but their solution has a way broader reach and they've already landed some of those other clients that went wait a second I get what you're doing over there. That's mm-hmm. fine, you're mining, but can you do it for me? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Big bridge building company, large construction, things like that. So they've had success in it, but to help them narrow their focus, they're now relying on an industry that they feel comfortable with
1: as mm-hmm. well. Mm. And that that just comes down to strategy because that's a choice. Totally. Right. Yeah, so then at that point, if and I'm not saying what I'm my my approach for for targeting and personas is the only way. There's lots of ways. Um, but fair enough, but for me, this is
0: gospel. Everyone, Mark has spoken. (laughs) No, No. but it's not just my
1: approach. I mean, this, like, I'm just trying to follow the evidence and make sense of it because, because I have seen that too, where you look at, we're targeting this group of people, but then you look at your actual customer base and they look nothing like exclusively that group of people you're targeting. Right. And so you're like, well, what are we actually doing? So, um, so in the mining... Who are who,
0: who, who we, who we fooling? Because clearly not our customers.
1: <laughs> well, mining... And so mining... I mean, in that scenario, like, do you need to build your entire business around like looking and feeling like a company that supports mining? Maybe, and maybe that's totally valid, and maybe that's D- depending on totally what the market accurate. opportunity
0: total. What's your total addressable market there? Is that what you want to do? Yeah, y- y- it's a bigger it's a bigger business, <clears throat> and I think we're touched on something here. Marketing is a is a tool for business strategy, not the other way around. Marketing is <laughs> like, strategy. Your, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, my business, we we only want to grow this and we only want to work in this sector and we only want to be this. Yeah. Well, then great. Then we need a marketing strategy to then support where the business ultimately wants to go. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Like marketing, I think, is too often associated with just advertising, advertising, which is only one of the four P's. There are three others pricing, place, and promote um, and product. But to get to that, so, you also and, need and it's to, so interesting
0: how we forget that because yeah. it's it's oversimplified and it's outdated and we need to talk about something new. But
1: yet it still holds true. <laughs> it's totally valid, yeah. And so, yeah, like that matters. And so the product has to match the promotion. Like if you're going to do that, and then the pricing is appropriate, and then the places that you're advertising in, or the places that you're yeah. you're putting your your business physical presence that matters. And so um, all all those things are connected together. It's not the, just the look and feel—it's not the lipstick on the pig, so to speak. It's it's everything else that makes that thing really great.
0: Curious, you're, and this, and then we're. I'm asking for broad view. A lot of marketers aren't scientists. They got into marketing for different reasons. They saw it as they were exciting. There was fun. It was they saw it as a powerful tool for business. Uh, what's your commentary, or just maybe advice, or or, or words of caution around? How quick we are to forget some of the fundamentals, like the four P's. I'm just going to pick on that one. Like, it's still true. It's always been true. It will be true. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the last time I was in a marketing presentation where anyone even referenced it because it's not cool to talk about that. It's not shiny. Mm-hmm. So therefore you're out selling the new shiny thing <clears throat> where the company maybe hasn't done the fundamentals, which are, for example, one of them being the four P's. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. like So there's a great, uh, well, a couple things. First thing is that I don't think that people even forget about the, like the fundamentals. I don't think people learn the fundamentals to begin with. Ah, okay, that's Like right. a lot of marketers, like me, I showed up with a science background having been in sales. Like, fuck, her, I yeah. didn't know anything about marketing uh, when I first got into it. And so I'm just curious. And so I've been trying to learn myself. But I look around and there's very few people that actually spend a lot of time looking at textbooks as, as an example, or just the fundamentals and doing training and that kind of stuff. So I think a training is really important and continuous training because marketing is a version of, it is part of the social sciences. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, science is self-correcting. And so there's ideas and things that we think about, um, that made sense at the time, like bloodletting that we don't do anymore <laughs> because it's been proven to be false. Like there's no benefit. I don't have any
0: freshly drilled holes in the front of my skull. Even though there was a time I might've been a candidate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so there's things like that. Like, you know, we talked about differentiation. There's a lot of debate about that. I don't know the differentiation is like, it's one of those things that maybe will end up like bloodlighting at some point, maybe not, but you know, the funnel might end up like bloodlighting. Loyalty is another one that I think is fascinating. NPS, like these are like things that we hold to be true. uh,
0: True.
1: Frequency of three. There's all these things that are, we're like that's just the way things are done, but we're not questioning whether they should be done or not.
0: Back to the you know it's only true if you can't disprove it, not if you can find all your biases that support it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Back to the scientific model, which we, everyone likes to joke about, or oh yeah, the scientific approach. But doing that takes a lot of rigor, and you have to be willing to let go of something that is just now proven to no longer be sustainable. Like you broke yeah. it, so now you have to dr- you have to drop it, or you or you can't you can't replicate it in a in a, in a clinical trial.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean I think there's everyone has to be open to being wrong. And, and you know, and I think and the, the the idea behind science is like I have a theory. I'm going to test it and see what the results are and then learn from that. And so I think, you know, in a lot of ways marketing is super familiar because we all do AB testing on all kinds of things. So um you know there's a lot to do um lots of things to test, lots of things to learn. Um, so there's, there's lots of opportunity to figure out the right way to do things or at least a better way to do things. If not the right way,
0: Uh, I've reserved the right to think about things differently tomorrow than I did today based on new information that's coming to my, coming to my purview. Uh, so circling back, uh, I'm a marketer at any level I'm in an organization and I get the question. Well, is like, is this going to work? Is this going to drive sales? Like, why are we keeping this going? It's been four weeks and mm-hmm. sales haven't happened. How do you deal with that? I'll just call it an objection. Mm-hmm. Being a sales guy from way back when, how would you deal with that objection in an environment where you're either the marketing agency or you're in you're in house and you're now in front of the board or in front mm-hmm. of uh, the leadership team defending why after four weeks you should keep this campaign going? Yeah, whatever it whatever it may be.
1: Yeah. Well, I, so the answer is yes, it's going to work. Um, But the beat, but (laughs) uh, not and and, four weeks is not the right timeline. Um, so we talked about mental availability way back. Uh, you originally opened this with you know, it all comes back to reach and frequency, and it does. (laughs) So you can, like, for example, going back to your B2B case, uh, in LinkedIn, you can take all those NAICS codes and plug that. LinkedIn uses NAICS codes, or they're converting to NAICS codes to figure out what companies are in their database based on NAICS code. So you can create a, um, like a a basically account-based marketing by sector of all the companies that are in there. So let's say there's, let's say there's for easy numbers, let's say there's a hundred companies in your sector that you're targeting. And there's four key decision makers, like say the CEO, CMO, uh, CCO and uh, or COO and I don't know, CFO that are in your so you've got now four people per company that you are trying to target so there's four hundred people right it's probably more like a hundred thousand companies and then four hundred thousand people
0: but but then you've got to put your ninety five five on top of that as right well, so really now you to, apply
1: that yeah. and you go, okay well five so five out of those hundred companies are actually making decisions today. It's possible that one of them, let's say our conversion rate is like 25%. It's possible we're going to win one in the next, whatever the buyer cycle is or sales cycle. So six months. So four weeks, not appropriate because we need at least six months before we're going to see anything, any kind of traction. And probably more like years to see the impact of the long-term. So the, the the weak force nudging people towards making a purchase, becoming a preferred choice. And so- And
0: your degree of availability and distinctiveness to that audience is going to really determine what that is 18 months from now. Right, and, which is why rebranding
1: is the stupidest thing ever because you have to look like yourself over and over <laughs> and over again, not just in a moment, but in time. So, So you have well, I, to like- <laughs> commit that. this yeah, that's yeah. why like td i just went in there yesterday this green chair thing i don't know if you'd see that but the green chair yep. thing it's on their debit cards yeah it's in all their ads they've been doing this for 20 plus years because it's consistent right I don't even know what it means, but it's still part of it. And so the, so the answer to go back to your question I don't even is know yes. what it
0: means, but I've recognized it so mentally that brand is available to me,
1: yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. and so your answer the answer to that question is, yes, it's going to work. If you want to see a result in four weeks, talk to sales because that's their timeline. Maybe maybe it's more like six months,
0: yeah, it d- depends on i'm I'm just picking on the, the, yeah, the yeah, four-week yeah. camp. we yeah, yeah that we're in more're in market for four weeks. Why hasn't it worked?
1: Yeah, out? so. Oh, and so the idea around mental availability is really just around uh, over time building up those memory links between your brand and the category entry points so the purchase triggers so that you can actually build m- mental market share off of the purchase triggers that matter the most and occur the most frequently to the people in your, the buyers in your category that you're trying to target. So that takes time and that takes years and years and years. And so advertising in really should never be turned off. And especially if you have an e-com business, e-com is well, yeah, is the on online what ca- store like we're actually talking about. Yeah. And online ads like search ads, those are the equivalent of store signage. They're not actually ads. It's like a wayfinder. <laughs>
0: I like that. I've never heard that. That's a great way to break that down. It's just in-store signage because your store now lives in this world.
1: Yeah. So that's <laughs> not even advertising. That's just rent.
0: It's just always on. Yeah, yeah, it's rent. So what I'm really hearing is don't ever underestimate your role as a marketer of also being an educator, because there's probably a lot of people in your world that are very accomplished in their careers that don't necessarily have taken the time that Mark has taken here to go down the rabbit hole of the science and the laws, not the, just the theories that exist around this. Mm-hmm. So don't forget, you always you know, always be educating when it comes to your stakeholders, which are often individuals that have built their careers around everything else other than market, mm-hmm. is, is my experience, for sure.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. and people that say ads don't work on me, that's probably a great person to talk to because it's true. They don't work on everybody now. They don't like understand what that means.
0: The ads that I'm not interested in, hundred percent don't work on me. 100%. Yeah.
1: And then, and the other one I would say is like CFOs and finance people, I think should be marketing's best friends. Like mm. there, there's so much that marketers need to learn about business and, and the language of business. Yes. So to convert our marketing speak, like brand equity stuff we talk about all the time or whatever, personas, ICPs, and blah, 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 like all these like TLA three-letter acronyms that we throw out.
0: <laughs> we all love good TLAs. Yeah. So
1: like understanding the business language and, and, and having the marketing teams convert our language to business language rather than having expecting the business to convert to our language is going to be um, a, a great help for anyone.
0: I heard a joke years ago, like if you're, if you're a CMO in any type, especially a 2 b environment, you better know what your VP of sales takes in their coffee, or you're going to have a, you're going to have a short tenure. What I'm hearing is also, you better know what, uh, you better know what your, um, your CFO eats for lunch as well. Cause you might be, you should be spending some time with them. Yeah, <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> So we will coin that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah If you if you really want to speak the right language, which is the language of the business, yeah. they're not going to, they're not going to learn your shorthand, but you better learn theirs. Yeah, yeah, I do. Totally. I really, I, I like that. I, I like that actually. I understand where you, where you sit in the cycle. Yeah. Uh, Mark, that was an awesome chat, man. I was looking forward to it. We always have good coffee. Yeah, so I, I knew this one was going to be, was going to be fun. And, uh, thanks for geeking out with us a little bit on this one. I, I enjoyed it. I don't get to go down this, this, this mark, the, this deep into this marketing rabbit hole as I, as I, as I would like, you're kind of re, um, You're reigniting a little bit of the, uh, you and I share a similar, I have a science degree, similar background. And over the years, I've not done as much. I've not kept up on as much as the bleeding edge stuff as I I could. There's a little bit of vulnerability and transparency because you get caught in the grind of just pumping out and doing work and being busy and running a company
1: Totally. where this
0: is, this is why I got into this in the first place because I love the nuance of this so much. So thanks for, thanks for taking me down this trail a little bit this morning. I really enjoyed it. No, Mm
1: -hmm. it was really fun. Thanks for having me on. It was awesome just to Chat and kind of try and put all these thoughts together, <laughs> put the pieces together. Yeah.
0: Hey, you're you're looking for opportunities. I think I know you mentioned you're doing consulting. You're looking for like full time. What's the best way for someone to get a hold of you? It's LinkedIn or someone just wants to have a chat because you're you're a great guy to talk to about. This yeah, stuff.
1: LinkedIn's mm-hmm. probably the best. I do actually have so I'm Mark Binkley on LinkedIn, Mark with a C. Uh, but um, I also have a website too that I had to build for. <laughs> The job oh, nice! Application yeah, yeah, you you did that. You you, you did yeah. the so, mark
0: Binkley, markbinkley.com or dossier yeah, yeah.
1: Dot com. So yeah, I'm there okay. as well. But yeah, LinkedIn's usually the easiest way to get a hold of me.
0: It's yeah. Hey, we're 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 all on it. It feels it feels like the uh, it's the one social media platform. I don't feel I don't feel like I've just wasted the last ten minutes of my life. Yeah, right. Time on it. Yeah, <laughs> it seems to, it hasn't jumped the shark in in that way. Yeah, but Mark loved it. Loved our chats. Really, really like the the work you do, and and I really like the way you think about things. So, thanks for sharing that with us today. And uh, this is part one. I've, I I have a feeling you and I will be will be uh, deep diving again. Uh, yeah, that'd be great. Future.
1: I'd love to do it again. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, Tom.